the first thing I want to talk to you about, Michel Serre, is this idea of handedness. Yes, rather selfishly, this applies to myself. <laughs> so would would would, and that's my way into everything, David. You know, <laughs> how does this affect me? Well, the point is, I like my Michel Serre as someone who is coerced-handed. So I'm I was born left-handed, but I was made right with my right hand. Just like Serre, yeah. For various cultural, economic, and religious reasons. <laughs> yes, but Serre. He makes something of this, and I thought that might be a useful way to his thinking. Sure. I mean, I think it's something I can say a word or two about that now, and I think it's something we, that will become a bit clearer as we go on and that we can come back to. Um, uh, there's a couple of points, I think, to, uh, to, 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 to think about this. First of all is that he, um, he says many times that we never begin from any one place in particular. We're always in the middle of things. Uh, if we are in the middle of things, then uh, just speaking in very simple terms, uh, if we're in the middle of things, then it's, it's that's quite handy to be both-handed, <laughs> if you like. Not my practical right. experience, um, but because what he uh, what he says about this is that when he was he was left-handed and was then taught as a young boy to be right-handed, right with his right hand and so on, um, and he says the usual reaction is to be quite uh, resentful about this and say I was made to do something unnatural and so on. But he said that he was always very happy about this because it, it made him something like ambidextrous. It meant that he could use both hands. And he describes the, the condition of being one-handed as being um, hemiplegic. That's the word, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and he said, he said, this was great because it, it sort of made me whole in a way. It made me... Right. Now, I think the point for him is not actually about being whole because the, the idea of holes don't really figure in his thinking very much. I think the idea is that uh, you you are comfortably in the middle of things. <laughs> right. um, yeah, I'm not ambidextrous. He, so um, that's the that's the difference. Like I, okay. I'm non-handed. Yeah. <laughs> I've got no hands. <laughs> You've seen my ad well, writing. That, yeah, that's that's probably a little different. Um, so, for example, he talks about yeah. the experience of, of swimming and how swimming is great because you move in a way which is uh, symmetrical, basically, uh, in your body. Uh, and he talks about the great experience of being in the middle of re when you're swimming out from one bank to another and arriving in the middle of the stream and that moment when you can't quite go back but you're not safe yet on the other side. And this is, this is that's, that is the experience of swimming across a river, you know, which I'm sure he would have done lots of times in, when he's, in his youth when he was growing up. So um, there's all this sense of being in the middle of things. And I think that, that the, the two-handedness is a little bit about that. Um, you know. That's a, a good place to start talking yeah. about it because he's, he's just a philosopher of the between. He is a philosopher of the between, yeah. I mean, the one point I'd just add, and then we can come back to it as well later, is that uh, we'll come back to it, I'm sure, uh, is that he he thinks that one of the things that's distinctive about the human being is that it's, it is sort of de-differentiated. So uh, whereas we think of evolution as, as moving towards specialization to occupy a particular niche, uh, one of the things that's the, the thing, one of the things that's most significant about human beings is becoming de-differentiated, that we have uh, multiple potentials. And again, I think the handedness thing maybe ties in a little bit there too. Uh, and we'll come back to that. I mean, maybe we talk about yeah. some of the ideas we want to move on to later. But the um, that, that there is that sense of not being quite specialised, having options. That is also something which features a lot in his thinking. But you want to talk about the uh, being in the middle of things, yeah? Yeah, well, I, that's thought it would be an interesting way of uh, talking about him. What drew you to this chap first? He's an interesting figure in the history of continental philosophy, I suppose. He's 
you know, you have written on some of the key figures on in continental philosophy. You've written on your Foucaults and you've got a book on on uh, Heidegger. But he's a little bit different, this guy, isn't he? So what drew you to him first? Mm. Um, what drew me to him first? Well, in literal terms, uh, I was invited to do some work on him. Um, our colleague, Bill Ross, uh, who was then uh, running a publishing company, Clinton Press, asked if I wanted to be involved in the preparation of, a, of uh, the English translation of The Birth of Physics, Michel Serre's book on, on Lucretius. And um, I jumped at the chance because it sounded interesting and I knew it would be an opportunity for me to learn some more about him because I'd, I'd, I'd read some Serre before. I'd picked up some of Serre's books before. And to be honest, I, I was stuck. I found him very I was nonplussed. I didn't know how to read him and he confused me a lot. So I thought, okay, well, this would be a chance to try and find out some more. So I, I said yes. And in the course of working on that book, I completely fell in love with the book and in part also completely fell in love with uh, says thinking. Why? What is it about him? I've always, I suppose, had an interest in, in, in the ideas of contingency and how we make sense of chance, I suppose, in our lives and in in the world and those themes are very strong in, in Sayre's work uh, very prominent and um, once I started to get to grips a little bit with Sayre's thinking and writing I found that his writing is just a, a joy to be with uh, really I mean uh, he, he writes beautifully and he writes in a really uh, quite an unusual way and um uh, a thoroughly enjoyable way, I just think. Um, it is just a pleasure to be, to, to read and to, to, to think along with when you when you read his books. And unlike some of his contemporaries, yeah. you know, he's, he's someone who definitely works at the intersection of the arts and the sciences. Mm. I mean, again, that's him being in the middle, I guess. And he's, unlike his contemporaries, he's steeped in... Science yep. and mathematics. It's all there, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. like, unlike say, yes. you know, we know Heidegger knew about maths and science. Yeah, no, he was, he was. Um, that, that, that's one of the other things that I think is just so attractive about him. He's, and I've already mentioned it away in, in a way, uh, he's not a specialist. He, or else he's a specialist in everything. Um, I mean, he's incredibly well-informed and knowledgeable and insightful about so many different things. Um, but yeah, he's, he had a very strong background in mathematics, uh, and he realized that mathematics was a key to, to thinking about how to think, if you like, very early on in his work, right, back, right from the very, very beginning. Um, so he has that, uh, connection to mathematics. He's, uh, uh, was always interested in science, uh, Rather more than what his philosophical contemporaries were doing, to be perfectly honest, he was. The, he says in various interviews and things that he'd he he read Heidegger, but um, it all felt like he was writing about a world that had disappeared or was disappearing. Uh, Which is quite a Heideggerian point, that isn't it? If you yeah. think about it, you know, it's like Heidegger's yes. point is that histor the historical determines meaning. That that world, in, in a way, 
was disappearing. I suppose they they felt rather differently differently about that. I suppose um, he was completely absorbed with things that were happening in technology, uh, with scientific advances. He thought that things that had happened in in, in thermodynamics, in in quantum physics, in um, information theory, um, people thinking that the work in in um, by Prigogine and Stengers on um, on uh, biochemistry and the emergence and all of these things were actually far more significant and interesting philosophically than going back over Husserl's analysis of time, for example, which is uh, this is one of, the, one of the examples he gives as, as something he just poor old Husserl didn't <laughs> really feel that he was getting the um, enough, uh, enough out of, and he felt sort of um, so he was always engaged with the sciences and with the history of science far more than he was with the main figures that we think of around him perhaps his peers or shall we say far more he was involved with the sciences and history of mathematics and sciences and so on far more than he was engaged with all the other things that his peers were engaged with right? they were all thinking about things to do with phenomenology and subjectivity or they were thinking about psychoanalysis or marxism and so on and he just was not so he, he really was quite unusual. Yeah, because he's not, that's what interests me about him, even though I know, as we discussed, remarkably little about him, yeah. um, which is why you're here, I guess. But uh, unlike his, his contemporaries, he's not, he doesn't fit with the uh, the continental tradition, I think, strictly, but he doesn't fit with the analytic tradition either, does he? No, that's right. I mean, there's, I mean, if he's, he was... I think he was quite happy not to fit in too much. He often, in interviews and some in some of his texts, he often complains about the fact that he was feels like he'd been made homeless by uh, by the philosophical community in France and Paris in particular. Uh, I think he carried a little bit of uh, rancor and resentment about that with him. But uh, uh, but in another way, he's he's a just uh, he just. It's a bit of a born misfit in a way. He's, he, he's, he was never really going to be simply a part of that world. And um, so you can't really fit him in anywhere entirely. But uh, I think if you were going to link him anywhere, if you're going to try to fit him into any one kind of group or, 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 or set of interests, it would really be in uh, French philosophy of science, epistemology, history of science. There, I mean, with the figure of Bachelard, Gaston Bachelard behind him, and um, and in some ways also Conguillem, although he fell out with Conguillem um, over one or two things. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's probably that tradition of thinking about the history of science and history of mathematics that is closest to him. But the interesting thing is that for him, very quickly it stopped being anything about internal problems to do with those fields, and immediately became. Uh, about how you can take something from these fields uh, and, and learn about thinking yeah? and learn about thinking in ways that then immediately become translatable into other fields and other ways of thinking and other topics. Uh, he was never one for just having a single focal point and sort of a deeper dive into a, into a particular problem. He was always connecting, uh, relating and kind of on the move in his thinking in all kinds of ways and that's actually a really important um in terms of what how he understands what philosophy is and what it can do and how we think uh, it's not just his individual sort of idiosyncrasy if you like it's it's actually right there in what he thinks it is to 
to think and to do philosophy. Yeah, so thinking requires both the poetic and the scientific. And of course he was, yeah. am I right in this, factually he was the chair of the history of science at Sorbonne, yeah? Yeah, he taught the history of science, yes. And um, but, um, <laughs> So he's in the history department, yes, not the philosophy department, which he was on the floor above, uh, which he was always a little bit unhappy about. But um, But yes, that's right. Yeah. So let's try and get into the weeds a bit. And I was thinking that we could talk a little bit about some of his more broader influences. Uh, and there's two striking figures, I think, and that's Leibniz and Bachelard. Yeah. And Leibniz, he wrote a book on Leibniz, which is one of his first books, I believe, which is not translated, I don't think. It's uh, not as yet translated, although there is work underway. Uh, there is work underway, not by me, I hasten to add, but um, but uh, watch this space. Yeah, that was his PhD thesis, which was a monumental, um, something like 850 pages of, uh, of, of analysis of uh, Leibniz's thinking in terms of Leibniz's mathematical models and how Leibniz thought, how mathematically or used certain mathematical models, but features, ways of thinking, uh, how, they, how that becomes part of his thinking generally. And it becomes very much part of Sayers thinking generally. So I should trying to explain briefly what that means. He's he's very interested in Leibniz because Leibniz is not a systematic thinker in the classical sense that, uh, that he sets out foundations and then elaborates them and arrives at a series of positions and explains how the whole architectonic works or anything like that. Um, uh, rather, he's he he's it's more of a his works are articulated through multiple short pieces rather than one great work or something like that, right? The question then becomes when you read it like this, when people come to like this, is where to begin and what to what to take as the right entry point. Do you work on his mathematics? Do you work on his his uh, his metaphysics or his theological work or his or his uh, account of dynamics and forces and uh, where do you begin with all of this? Says point is that you can actually begin anywhere, and wherever you begin, you end up. Uh, if you think through Leibniz's system from there, you end up creating a distinctive Leibniz in effect, and that Leibniz's work is all of these, but but in a way which is superimposed, if you like, one on the other, so that you find your way through the one to the next to another but there's no single correct way of doing this uh, so there's a system but it's a system of all of these things all of the approaches taken together so you can begin here begin there you end up with different versions different readers of Leibniz okay take all of these together that would be something like a the right the right Leibniz who's reading but there is no single right Leibniz is reading that we can do of course this actually reflects Leibniz's philosophy itself the idea that um uh, in the in the monadology that everything is connected to everything else, everything is a an expression of everything else, and that um, there are there's an infinity of perspectives that you can take on the world, and there is no single true perspective apart from the integral of all of all possible perspectives, which is what God can manage. You know, being, I, being smarter I, than we are. Right. Yeah, yeah, I was thinking that yeah. I could see why Leibniz would be, <laughs> you know, uh, yes. map onto yeah. onto onto uh, Sarah because Leibniz mm. is. Scientific metaphysician, yeah, in a way, yes, he is. This, this is, and there's a there's sort of a play that happens between, between the sense that everything is connected to everything else in a material in a material form. Um, so everything literally impacts and connects with everything else. But the, this becomes a metaphysics in in Leibniz. But yes, um, the key thing for, for I think for uh, that comes out of Leibniz for Sayer is that this is a thinking of 
relations. Everything is connected to everything else, and we have to think through relations. We don't begin with any single one point and think that that's going to give us the... So there's that betweenness again, yeah. Yeah. One a little example of, uh, of this. We have the classical story of the cave where, you know, Plato's cave where the you go down and you find the prisoners chained up on the down the bottom of the cave and there's the, uh, there's the fire and the fire is casting shadows of images and, and so on in the walls in front of them. And uh, that this is the sense of us being caught in this uh, realm of illusions and we have to find our way out of the cave or be dragged out of the cave up to the sun and then we can see truly. And of course, in this uh, story, and the sun is the one true light, the light of the light of truth. And uh, um, whereas for Sarah, Sarah counterposes to this a story taken from Jules Verne of uh, descending into a into a cave, and then the group, the explorers, descend down into the cave, and the cave. On, on the ceiling of the cave are crystals everywhere and all their lanterns begin to shine lights to the crystals which reflect and refract the light all the way across backwards and forwards across the the cave so there is no single true one light <laughs> there are multiple lights each of which is ref reflecting and passing on communicating all of the other lights so you end up with this complex world where everything is lit in multiple ways through multiple relations to everything else. That's his world, not Plato's cave. Yeah. Now, speaking of ancient philosophy, one of the figures that we might have something in common with that we're both interested in is Lucretius. Yeah. And you are the translator of Michel Serres. Oh, what's that in French? It's going to say something like La naissance de physique. La naissance de la physique, yeah. So, yeah, so that's the birth of physics. Yeah. And that's Michel Serres' intellectual engagement with Lucretius's yeah. uh, Derrera Natura, also the nature of things. Yeah. Now, that text, that book, is a great book, that's usually treated as proto science. It's more seen as significant because of its poetic quality. It's one of the great works of of, of poetry. And it yeah. is one of the great works of poetry of philosophy or literary yeah. philosophy. But Sayre, being Sayre, mm. thinks that it's not the poetry that's as important. Well, the poetry is important, but it's the, his, his actually his scientific insights. Yeah. Yeah. So could you perhaps speak about that a little bit, David? Because I know in the birth of physics is all about Lucretius's very active account of atomism, early, early atomism. Yes. Yeah, and his notion of this idea of the clinamen yep. and turbulence, which Sayre sees as profoundly valuable in the scientific sense. Absolutely. First of all, um, the yes, uh, translated the birth of physics with Bill Ross, co-translator. Oh. Uh, don't, don't forget. <laughs> Sorry, Bill. Bill. <laughs> um, there's there's a couple. There's there's various moves that that Sayre makes in order to draw a quite different reading out of uh, out of Lucretius or a different reading to the you know, to the usual one that you've outlined. Uh, the first is that um, he says, "Look, why is it that why is it that people say that Lucretius is just this lovely bit of poetry and there's some interesting ideas in here, but you know, it's it's essentially literature, not science, because it's a bit woolly around the edges and uh, and so on." Well, the, the reason they say that, or one of the reasons they say that, is because it, we think of science has 
being mathematical. In, in order for science to be rigorous, it has to be mathematical. And of course, there's no mathematics in Derrera Natura. It's all poetry. So, yeah, there we go. What he then does is say, all right, well, what is it that 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 Lucretius is doing here? He's setting up this 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 um, scenario about how uh, the universe works. And as you say, that begins with the imagined state, if you like, of, of atoms raining down through the void, through an infinite void, atoms raining down in perfect straight lines. Of course, that is an image of perfect, uh, sounds like perfect order in a way, but it really is perfect disorder. There's just nothing. There isn't anything. Right? There's nothing which you could point to to say, right, there's something, which would be a form of order of some kind. Perfect disorder. Now, and then at some point, there is this swerve, this clinamon, which happens entirely spontaneously, without cause. That leads to collisions between atoms, and then more collisions, spirals, and that becomes turbulence. And then from that turbulence, vortices begin to form as atoms, having collided, begin to combine and then move with more regularity. And that so the turbulence turns into vortices, and the vortices then are dynamic patterns of order, really. Then, as he says, we are all vortices. Everything is a vortex. So his interest then is in how matter forms uh, quasi-stable forms uh, that are dynamic, not static. Now, having outlined that, he says, well, wouldn't it be lovely if we had a mathematics that could deal with this? <laughs> and... And then he says, well, actually, there was one, and they belonged to Archimedes. Archimedes developed a mathematics that could deal with all of these topics, all of these things. There were spirals and, and, and slightly disordered movements and uh, multiple multiplicities and all kinds of things. So he, he, he combines Lucretius's poetic presentation of these ideas with an Archimedean mathematics and says, there you go, ancient science. Sorted. Ancient science, right. But actually, it's a very contemporary science as well, because it is about... Um, he also, as usual, reads all of this through lots of other things, but in the main through Leibniz as well, and through thermodynamics, which is something we might come on to. So this is this ancient atomism. Then, rather than being about little fundamental bits of matter, becomes a theory of flow, becomes a theory of, of multiple flows, and dynamic fluid relations and how they begin to uh, settle or not settle into more uh, stable forms which then then that's that's lucretius's account of how a world forms right yes yeah, so he's lucretius that is yeah. for say is anticipating the theory of disorder a theory of disorder which generates order or structure yeah, I mean, he, our entropy, isn't it? It's entropy yes, in thermodynamics. Yeah, absolutely. Because everything that all order that forms will gradually break down, uh, and there's your entropy. Um, and um, as as atoms gradually kind of spin off back into the void again, and and the pattern of the quasi stable or quasi regular pattern of flow begins to unravel and break down back into the flow. So yes, entropy. Um, so I anticipate yes, although the in some ways. The idea of anticipation assumes that there's a something like a linear history here, which is not really the way that Seth thinks about this. In as much as he he thinks about 
connections between different thinkers, different works, different ideas as uh, in a more, and we might come onto this in, in, in a more uh, topological sense. His, his image is, is imagine you took a, imagine you took a, a, think of the whole history of everything that we, philosophy and culture and science and everything else. And imagine that sort of laid out on the big sheet or a handkerchief or something is the word he uses, right? Multiple relations, backwards and forwards, but we're moving in that direction. Yeah? And then you can, well, it's all flat. You can map it very easily, but then you crumple it up. And you find that points that appear to be distant from one another are in fact quite close because everything's got folded in certain ways. This, this is more like what we what we have. Um, and uh, rather than saying that Lucretius anticipates what we do, it's I think he would more likely say that he's, we're just close to him. We're proximate. Yeah. Uh, where actually he's Lucretius is our contemporary. That's a nice way of thinking about it. And I suppose that goes back to what you were saying about contingency as well, isn't yeah. it? Because yeah. now I don't, I'm not a scientist and I don't understand entropy and thermodynamics, but I think the, the basic idea, as I understand it, is that uh, with, with entropy, all systems, entropy is the tendency towards disorder in a system, right? So yeah. it implies that contingency is inherent to the formation of any structure. So what Lucretius gives us for Sayre is this idea that contingency and chance are dominant yeah um he gives us that he certainly gives us that the order emerges essentially by chance he gives us the idea that what we that the order we end up with uh is a pattern of regularity shall we put it like that which has emerged out of more chaotic states more would, disordered states would topology be a good word for that you could, yes, you for could, that pattern of regularity, you could you could talk about it in terms of topology. Yes, um, I like to think of it in in dynamic terms, in in the sense of uh, flows that have flow of have um, settled into forms of regularity. So that I mean, it says again, he's one of the images that he comes back to very often is that of a um, if you stand on a bridge and look at the uh, the river flowing underneath, bits of it are really disturbed water sort of going over the stones and so on and then you'll find you'll see patterns where it appears to run quite straight but then you'll find areas where it's sort of it's it's in whirlpools little whirls and eddies and you think well how does that actually remain stable with all this flood of water rushing past it and yet somehow it does it just stays a little whirl somewhere just near an interruption near stones or near the bank or something and um this is again if you like this is our world this is our world is one of these little eddies and whirls that stays stable for a time and then will gradually at some point get blown back off into the I into can the, see the flow, I, I can know? see why the why it needs the poetic side of things is there because it's like it's, uh, it's a very sort of scientific idiom yes. scientific language is yeah. using but it's it's at the same time it's got this wonderful aesthetic that doesn't it it's this, these complexes of space time yes, place yeah, yeah. process the space and time thing is really important here as well, which are one of the things, I mean, he picks this up from lots of places, but, but he does pick it up specifically from uh, Lucretius that uh, that the world that we're in, Lucretius says, is, is just one world. And that across the universe, the universe being infinite, there will be other worlds. And we don't know that they're formed in the same way that our world is. In fact, they almost certainly won't be formed in the same way that our world is. And so they'll follow different patterns and different laws, different patterns of regularity, right? And that means that we are always dealing with locality. 
that we don't have uh, universal descriptions, we don't have universal laws, not even about how matter moves, basically. So the links of one, one event leads to another in, a, in ways that are unpredictable and not yet law-governed until that movement becomes part of a stable, quasi-stable order. But to begin with, it's not, because those orders, those patterns of order have got to form, and then they will form one way here, but a different way there. So we have locality, that what we have here is not the same as. It will be everywhere. And that works, that's a little story which you can pick out of uh, of the way that Lucretius talks about the formation of worlds, but it's 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 true for Ser at every level, really. So um, we could talk about locality in multiple ways. Yeah, so like in an atomic level, in a sort of in, in minutia, yeah. yeah, or sorry, in, in minuscule yeah. stature, but this as well, what we're having now, yeah, or I don't know, a, a team at a football stadium or whatever, yeah, exactly, or a wider social level, or yeah, we could talk about it like that. We can talk about it um, in terms. We can talk about it geographically. That what's true here will not be quite true and working in exactly the same way if we move uh, to a different continents and different places around the world. Let alone to different planets or whatever. Right? We can we can even think about it um, in terms of different levels. I think this is what you were talking about. They're just really. We can say that we can think about a locality that we describe in terms of, of formation of of. Of, of, of the world in a, in a geological sense, uh, but also levels a locality that we can talk of talk about in terms of the emergence of life, or in terms of the emergence of human life and social life, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. All of these things form multiple. You could think of them in, as levels, if you like, that one emerges in, in in certain ways from the other, and that the same patterns as Lucretius makes clear the same ways in which order forms are repeated, but they give rise to different forms of order. It makes with me think of a bit of a um, sort of an ambiguity there, I think. Mm. If you follow me, try, let me try this out on you. Yeah. He's asking what makes thinking possible, really. Kind mm. of a, almost Kantian in a way, like what makes uh, yeah. thought intelligible for any particular thing in the universe. Yes. From the most small to the to the largest. But in another sense, he's, 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 he's still quite a materialist, isn't he? He's like, mm. he's like... He's, we need to do that in order to get rid of thought, in a sense, in order to see the world. I suppose, was it the great outdoors, as Quinton mm. Mayer Sue says it? I don't, I'm yeah. not sure if those two are reducible to each other, but yeah. but do you follow me? I do, and and, and I think you're right. There's, you're onto something there. I think you're quite right to point that out. One way, I, something I could say about that, or a way I like to think about it, is that Sarah, Sarah this goes right to the beginning, back to the beginning of our conversation, Sarah's not a, interested in the philosophy of the subject, right? He's just not interested in that whatsoever. What he's thinking it's not just something that happens in my head um, and it's and it's not the creation of meaning out of my experience or, or transcendental forms of consciousness or anything like this, right? Thinking for him is part of uh, the relations between all things. And that's not just human things, but all things in effect, right? So... What he says is that everything communicates with everything else and that we can think about this through information theory, saying that everything receives information, stores it, processes it, and... Translates? re it, translates, exactly. Everything is a translator, basically. Right? 
everything. So not just people who actually translate books, but but everything, because the, even the, just the things around us on the table here uh, receive light and reflect it out again. They take heat in, they, they emit it again. They've, they've all kinds of other uh, forms of relation that will be absorbing stuff out of the atmosphere and storing it and then remitting it again in different ways and so on. So everything is communicating, thinking, and in a sense, everything is thinking. Everything communicates. Everything. Thinking is just a part of this. It's a way we take part in it. One of the concepts that he uses is the black box. Yes. And I have a bit of a brief quote here from his book, uh, The Five Senses. Mm. I think uh, it's translated title. And he says, take a black box to its left or before it, there is the world to its right or after it, traveling along circuits. There is what we call information. Mm. The energy of things goes in, disturbance of the air, shocks and vibrations, heat. Alcohol or ether salts, photons, inter- and he goes on, and yeah. he says information comes out, and he says even meaning comes out. Meaning comes out, uh, and we we generally think about that in, in terms of the way in which the, as he puts it, the 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 energies and material elements of the world, the hard, uh, are sensed by us, as that book talks about the five senses. And that then something happens in us and we end up producing meaning out of it, right? But we are only a singular example of what of a of a generalized process. Everything is doing this somehow. So everything is generating meaning in some way. In some ways, yes, because it, it radiates something out, it emits something. And that's it that is its translation of what it took in. <laughs> right. Um, it that what it emits is in, in effect is its its interpretation of the world, its expression of the world, right? Uh, so everything is doing this, and thinking is, um, yeah, a part of the way that we do this. Uh, it's a very obviously, it's a very particular example of it, and I think Sarah would say it. It's a particularly inventive way of doing this, but it is still one variation on all of those other variations that we could find in the world of everything doing this all of the time. So what? You mentioned his materialism. Um, I mean, he sometimes gets a little bit sort of uncomfortable with that term, but I think I think it does a lot of work in terms of saying, uh, describing his thinking. Um, I think I don't feel too uncomfortable with that. What thinking in this way, just as I've explained about thinking as a variation on all the other forms of communication, everything has uh, with everything else, is a way of understanding how we as human beings are uh, in no way exceptional we are simply doing what everything else does <laughs> um, but just in a particular way that it's developed in this rather strange thing that we call the human body and mind and, and so on yeah now i'd like to talk about some of his other concepts as well yeah and one of the things one of the figures i thought this would be a useful way to Get a, sort of an entry point into uh, yeah. Michel Serres. One of the figures that he uses is the uh, the Harlequin. Mm. Now, the Harlequin is a kind of a, a composite figure. I, I always think of it as sort of a sort of multicolored clothes stitched together. Yes, and he he's he's drawn to this figure because and this follows up from what you've actually just been saying. He's resistant to the notion of concepts. And he rather thinks of it in terms of types or archetypes or personages. Or... Yeah, yeah. Um, start with that point. Um, he, the beginning of his book Genesis, he says, right, my, what I'm going to try and do is think multiplicity without the concept. To any good post-Kantian philosopher, that sounds like a, 
Okay. Big no-no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like a, just to see things. So, yeah, it's an anathema, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and he, obviously he's being deliberately provocative to an extent there, but and playful. But, but he actually is doing this, trying to think in octopusity without the concept, because the concept will take something which is, um, which is unformed, form it. Now, what um, what Sarah's doing, by contrast, is to take something that is already formed and transform it to something else. But that transformation takes place not by the application of a concept so much as by uh, an engagement with it through which something happens or it is placed in communication with something else so that his thinking is is transformative more than it is formative if you'll excuse that rather clunky expression right um it reminds me also of um uh, this might be shed a little bit of light on it it reminds me a little bit of, of bachelard says in one of his in one of his books that thinking is constructive he's thinking in particular about the way in which mathematical thinking configures the world for us in certain ways uh, but he says it's this isn't the, the cartesian notion of construction where we have to raise everything to the ground arrive at a complete zero of nothing and they go okay how do we construct the world how do we get back to the whole world right? and bachelor says we don't do that that's not that's not how things work and that's certainly not the way that scientific thinking works we always begin with something and we're always reconstructing. So we only ever reconstruct, we never construct. Um, and that's, I think there's something very similar with, with Sayre. He's never starting from nothing, as I said right at the beginning. He's always in the middle of things. <laughs> it's always just moving from one thing to another, translating from one thing to another, thinking out and working out how things are connected and through, through thinking, actually establishing connections very often. So the other thing about figure of Harlequin that interests him is that, as I was saying earlier, he's a thinker of locality. Right? So everything is about specificity, the detail. And that's what we find with Harlequin. His coat, initially, is of multiple colours, multiple designs, complex, and right? multiple colours, every colour is there. Right? And there's a story which uh, which uh, Sarah tells of the um, of Harlequin on stage and the, um, the crowd tell him to take off his coat. And, and Beneath, he has another coat, which is the same. And they cheer and then boo. And then take take off that coat. And then he, he takes off the coat. And he's got another one underneath, which is the same. And the crowd begins to get a bit restless. And they keep on going. And eventually, he takes off the final coat. And his skin is the same color. Right? It's multiplicity. <laughs> it's multiplicity right down to the bottom, all the way. Okay? And they get it. The crowd go, ooh. But then they, they, start, to, they start to leave. And then um, it turns into... Piero, Piero la Lune, figure of luminescent white, right? So uh, what's that about? Well, it's about the idea that um, Harlequin is this all things, all types, it's all variations together. It's that sense of there is multiplicity, there is locality, and we take all of the, the, the right approach is not to analyze, break down, to separate all of these to try to understand them by picking one out of the rest, but to understand them all together. Right? And uh, 
Piero is Piero la Luna is the figure of the wearing the luminescent white gown is the figure of this because white is all of the colors together, right? So you arrive at a sense of the universal, which is very distinctively Sayer's own, a sense of the universal as everything together, right? All variations together, and that's the way he was thinking of multiplicity. Now, of course. Um, how do you do that exactly? Well, he doesn't combine things by simply saying, okay, you must consider this, 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 and this together. Now go on, go off and do it, and, and here's how to do it. He combines things by drawing the connections between them, by linking them, which he does partly through the way he writes and partly through this, the fact that he does combine bits of science with bits of poetry, with bits of Greek, Greek mythology, with bits of and so on and so on. And it's by doing this that he links one thing to another and begins to form, gradually move towards something like that image of the, of the universal, if you like, which is all variations together, not uh, not just, um, not by, not you don't know, reach it by standing outside and taking some grand synoptic view. You actually have to stitch them and walk together one, one, from one to the next. And that then helps me link to the next concept I'd like to chat to you about. What he's doing there is he's giving a picture of how we how we think, what we are, yeah. and how we are in terms of the picture we build up of ourselves in terms of sciences developing into the 20th century. So very sort of new science he's, he's talking about as well. I, I kind of see what he's what you were saying about Heidegger at the beginning, because like what Heidegger's critiquing is kind of like the science of the, the late 1800s, yeah. or the 1800s rather, in sorry. Some ways, in some ways, yes. Yeah. 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 So then he gives us this very interesting picture of what it means to be a human being. And it's almost something that is touching on what we can now call post-humanism, I think. And he's got this concept, and I hope I'm going to pronounce this right, it's called hominescence. Yes. Right. Yeah. So hominescence is trying to understand the human being as it's changes its picture of itself, his world picture of itself, mm -hmm. to use sort of the Heideggerian language, with changes in science, technology, life extinction. So the idea is that the, the person that we are now bears very little yeah. similarity to the person we were, say, in the 1800s. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, that's absolutely one of his uh, terms and the title of one of his books, Hominescence. Um and what obviously that combines the idea of the of the homin the the sense of the human there uh, with the essence of the not the essence in the sense of the Aristotelian sense but the sense of something becoming um, something. So it is about how it is about the becoming of the human, and he has uh, he thinks that this that the, 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 the humanity is a, a very distinctive form of evolution. Because we've through uh, our adoption of technology, and he doesn't think we're the only animals to use technology, but we do so in a distinctive way. Beavers are pretty good, right? They're good. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the um, he, he thinks we do so obviously more so and distinctively that we are we've broken free, as he puts it, of a Darwinian evolution. We have what he calls an exo Darwinian evolution. Oh, right? could you could you explain that a little bit? Yeah, well, we don't. We don't. We're not trying to fit into any niche. Basically, we don't have a niche. Right. So, whereas other species do, they, to they, find, they optimize their niche yes. in order to survive. Yeah, we the, the human, humans don't. We've we've gone beyond that actually. And what we've done, 
which is in both exciting and interesting and also extremely dangerous because it's exciting and interesting because we can transform ourselves in ways that that we're not that aren't available to other um, animal forms and forms of life we what we, he talks about the way in which technology is in effect an externalization of our faculties so that we when we uh, develop new bits of technology what we're doing is 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 actually developing ourselves as human we're not is in, in that in that sense there is a connection to 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 thinking about hybridity and cyborgs and so on but um uh he would very much emphasize this sense in which we are uh, we are changing ourselves as human rather than um entering into a relation with something foreign to us in in, in any way so this emergence of a new humanity then yeah. that's was that something fixed or is that something static, yeah, like the statues he talks about, right? You know, humans yeah. humans have no definition, like he says, because we, that this is uh, some, what I mentioned right at the beginning. We are, we are de-differentiated. We, we develop by actually becoming less specialist in many ways uh, and therefore having multiple possible roots and potentials. That we yes, yeah, like almost a Nietzschean point, I guess, because he's saying that there's – this neither that is just what we are. It is neither good nor bad. It can have yeah. sort of negative consequences and it can have quite emancipatory consequences. It has both. And it obviously does have some emancipatory consequences. But of course, one of the reasons why we're in the mess that we're in today globally is, is precisely this. And the fact that the human life has out, out, just exceeded its its uh, kind of situation, if you like, and has filled the globe, as he puts it. We've just taken over the earth in ways which obviously are um, becoming enormously problematic through well, you're talking about the environmental crisis, basically. Yeah. yeah. Um, this, um, I, I mean, I was thinking about this back in the uh, already by the late seventies and into the early into the early eighties, uh, and he wrote about it most um, famously in the book *The Natural Contract*, where, he's, where he describes how classically social contract theory uh, talks about the emergence of civil society by leaving nature. Right? We have to exclude nature in order to form civil society, and that. Essentially, this has had a lot of very negative consequences because we've been dealing with nature in the same way ever since by essentially ignoring it and treating it as something that can just take care of itself out there somewhere. Uh, and that we can't do that anymore because, um, as he puts it, uh, the nature is becoming, has become a quasi-subject. It's acting back on us as we... It's, it's, so it's remarkably prescient then. Um, yeah, uh, and you can find you there are there are ways in which it it's you can see these ideas being taken up in sort of Gaia theory and in Bruno Latour's work and so on. Not always in the same ways. I think they're quite distinctive, but there are uh, features of this uh, in thinking like that. Yeah. So specifically for Sayer, then he's asking us to revise our view of the political order, and he's asking us at the same time for a new type of social contract is that right yeah the, the social contract must be rewritten to include nature basically it becomes a natural contract that's that's the idea now um it's it's what we make of that from Sayre's work is uh is something of an open question i mean he he proposes certain things um, which might look a little bit um uh, almost a bit naive in certain ways i mean he proposes that we should have transnational institutions, which include... Um, <laughs> Don't hold your breath. No. <laughs> that's what the realist will say, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Uh, which could include, um, include the represent, uh, 
parties that represent the natural world. So in that way, it is literally extending democratic representation to nature. He thinks that science can, can do this. He has a lot of very negative things to say about science, uh, in, especially in his early work, but he thinks in, his, in later sciences, particularly through climate science, he sees something change, that science is actually working much more uh, with rather than against and on the natural world. Um, so he thinks that science might be able to do this. Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, the, the, he may be a bit, being a bit hopeful. But there are different ways in which you might be able to begin, begin to think about this idea of a contract with the non-human world um, um, by moving through some of the ideas we talked about already in, in terms of how uh, order forms and how, uh, how everything is relational and so on. So I think there are routes that you can go through to, to begin to develop that thinking in ways... It's a very radical thought, I think, David, isn't it? Because always develop very explicitly in his work. Yeah, yeah, sorry to cut across yeah. you. It's quite a radical thought that because he's going against the the, the political canon. Yes. I think the political canon it starts with Hobbes and what's Hobbes saying is like we we formed the social contract in order to stave off nature to keep it sort of over there. Yes. You know, because it's it's nasty, brutish and short. Life yeah. is yeah, it's vicious and we do that in order to enhance our enlightened self-interest. Yes. Exactly. And, and his view is 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 a little bit more um, optimistic than that, I suppose you could say. I mean, the uh, I think you said earlier on that there's the sense in which the emergence of order and how it works and what comes of it is not necessarily good or bad. It's just what it is. Yeah, I don't think you'd I think you'd go along with that. Um, there's uh, uh, we can sustain ourselves in forms of life which are pleasurable and equable and and uh, just indeed in certain ways uh, but we'll never be able to achieve this permanently and, and completely uh, and equally uh, we don't do it we do it if we are going to do it if we are going to do it we must do it uh, in something like a, a symbiotic relationship with the non-human world around us it's not something which we can achieve in isolation from that and because that inevitably leads for him to all kinds of negative things, but certainly it would lead to the uh, objectification of the natural world and, and, and in ways which have very clearly come back to damage us and, and the planet, obviously. Um, so uh, so it's a, it's a balance. There's there's a good and the bad that can come with that. And, and he's... he's a, but there is, there is more of an optimism in it than the, than the Hobbesian story, which are where, where everything natural just looks, something, looks like something that has to be kept at bay. And overcome in order to establish a human, um, a safe human society or of uh, some kind. Well, that makes sense because we are natural beings. <laughs> yeah, and and we have to embrace that completely. In 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 um, for say, it's just a matter of understanding what that can mean, and, and in terms of the way that we think, act, and um, kind of communicate with each other in the world around us. So, just to draw things to a close, then, David, a couple of small questions for you. So, if you were going to recommend someone a way to say, where would you recommend they start? Mm-hmm. And you know why should we read Sarah today? You know why do you think he's important? Because you, you you're clearly enthusiastic about his ideas. I think. Oh yeah, oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> I am. Um, I think. Uh, I think why he's uh, he's he feels very timely now, in as much as what are, what are some of the main themes that we can pick out of his thinking? Well, these questions of our relationship to the to the non-human world and the fact that the human and the non-human have always been entangled with each other. They're not really separate. 
realms even ever in the first place. Um, and that's a very current topic. Uh, he, he, he writes some very interesting things about education and about how we, uh, we should reform education to become less specialist. Right? And so that people, uh, so that scientists actually have an education in the arts, that artists have an education in the sciences, because a lot of the topics we've been talking about um, cross all of these boundaries and borders. And yet the way in which people are trained to think tends to be very uh, specialist and compartmentalized. And he's very much against that. So he has a lot of interesting things to say about education. Um, I think he's got interesting things to say about what it is to uh, to be human. He's got interesting things to say about communication, about the world of technology. Um, he thinks like no other thinker I can put my finger on right now. So he's interesting for that reason. You know, uh, it's a way of communicating between philosophy and the sciences and making uh, drawing out things of interest between from from work in the sciences especially over, over the last couple of hundred years uh, and seeing how those things how those how that thinking in in science has um, can be extended into philosophy in ways that are really interesting important and, and creative so it's, it's a way of bringing a lot of these things together and that, that seems valuable uh, where to begin well I think that depends on what quite what your interest is. I mean, if you're really interested in the environmental stuff, then the natural contract seems like a really obvious place to go. One of his most popular books is The Parasite, which is really interesting on uh, on this idea of inclusion and exclusion and what it means to to exist in a certain way in relation to things that we treat as other. Uh, can we do this? And what, what prices do we pay when we try and do that? Um, there's, if you're... Um, you're interested in the idea of education, then the book, that she, which is translated as the Troubadour of Knowledge, uh, is, is a great place to begin. Um, one of his late books, uh, later books, uh, Times of Crisis, it's a nice little book to begin with on, on some of the crises that we're going through, in particular in relation to nature and, and what sense to make of them. Um, if you want to th think about getting beyond phenomenology in certain ways and uh, philosophy of language in certain ways, the book The Five Senses is, is a wonderful place. Uh, to begin, and if you think about technology, then uh, his little book Thumbelina is a wonderful little book. I meant to ask, what's that about? Well, it's it's a, like a it's it's like a it's a letter to young people, basically saying, uh, "Yeah, people complain about you because you're always on your phones and you're always." So it's like anti old fart book. Yeah. It is, yes, but it is. I, I I think it's absolutely wonderful because what you're doing is is becoming new kinds of human beings through your through your new kinds of technology, right? and. He just he goes through talking about how this works in slightly different ways, slightly different themes and examples, and he describes it as a just as a celebration, a loving letter to the young people to say this is wonderful. You well, that's refreshing, this. isn't it? Um, it is. Yes, that's why I say he's quite an optimistic in certain ways. He doesn't see all this stuff as terrible. Well, dark yeah, he sees the youth. He sees the youth as yeah. fecund and yeah, full of vitality abs and absolutely. the future and optimism. Yeah. He says, and I just wish I could live long enough to carry on that journey with you you know one of his books which that's is, so refreshing it's just such another misery isn't he <laughs> <laughs> if you really want to take a deep dive into his thinking and just throw yourself in i think the book the incandescent is is uh, magnificent and full absolutely just packed full of really startlingly interesting ideas um, and beautiful writing as well so the incandescent would be another place to begin
And if you wanted David to study him, say, where would you go? Oh, well, yeah. What could I possibly say? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there are some really good, uh, there are some really good people uh, around the world. Obviously, there's, there's um, Chris Watkin and Monash and there's a few very good people in, uh, in Paris and elsewhere in France. But mm. uh, but you would, um, you could do worse than uh, coming here to Staffordshire with... Uh, with us. With us, yeah, because... Um, as, as you can tell, I'm really interested in Sayre. Bill Ross, who I've worked with very closely on Sayre, um, is extremely knowledgeable on all of this stuff, and especially on the Leibniz connections, and especially on all the connections with mathematics and science. So you could come study our MA, couldn't you? Uh, you could, for example, come study our Let's get our, We've got to plug our pluggables, David. Just, I was getting there, but, you, but why not? Absolutely. <laughs> I'm, no, I'm, I'm more shameless than you, yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, come and do our MA in the philosophy of nature, information and technology. Um, uh, come talk to us about any research projects. Thanks, David. That's brilliant. Fantastic. Thank you.